Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, it's great to see everyone this morning. I want to welcome our Winston-Salem campus at Sherwood Forest. I want to welcome everyone in our Clemens campus this morning. It's always, always great for us to be together. Many of you know that uh, every year in July, I take a sabbatical and uh, go away, do sermon prep, series prep, that kind of thing. But I also spend some time with the Lord asking Him a couple of things. I ask Him, what do we need? What do we need and what should we focus on in the year that is to come? What do we need? What do we need to focus on? And uh, last year, you'll remember, many of you will remember that our, our theme was Love United. The focus was on the church and loving each other as a witness to the world. Love United. I, I see some Love United t-shirts here today. They're good-looking shirts. Glad you wear them. Uh, Our theme for this year is Go, the World is Waiting, and our focus this year is on sharing the gospel of Christ with those in our world. Uh, Many of you will know that my wife is a teacher at Metal Ark Elementary, and she was telling me this past Monday that as she was walking through the halls of Metal Ark, she noticed all kinds of Go shirts at the school. Uh, little Center Grove ambassadors all over Middle Ark Elementary sporting their Go shirts. And uh, she noticed one, one little girl she didn't recognize, she didn't know, and so she stopped her because she wanted to get to know her, find out who she was and that kind of thing. And she stopped her, and when she stopped her, she said, you're wearing my shirt. And the little girl looked at her like, lady, I don't know what you're talking about, but this is my shirt. She thought about it for a second, and then then it all came together for her, and she said, oh, 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 you must go to my church. (laughs) You must go to my church. And Cheryl said, yeah, and then tomorrow I'm going to wear my shirt. I'm going to wear my shirt. So she did. But uh, I want to thank all of you for uh, displaying your Center Grove colors wherever you go. I want to thank you for putting those uh, magnets on the back of your car, those appliques on your window. I'll tell you, I have heard over and over and over again from people, I kept seeing, I kept seeing your magnets, I kept seeing your applique, and after a while, I I saw it so much, I had to look you up online, and then I had to come for a visit. So I appreciate you being ambassadors with your car and with your shirts. One guy was down in uh, Myrtle Beach, and he stopped one of our members wearing one of our shirts, and he said, where are these shirts coming from? He said, I see them all the time. Wear them at the beach. Wear them at the beach. So we're in this series, Go, the World is Waiting, which is our way of focusing on this theme and focusing our minds and our attention on part of our mission, our purpose, and our strategy. Our mission is to make disciples. Our purpose is to change the world, one life, one family, one community at a time. Our strategy is to do that by loving God in worship, growing together in small groups, serving the needs of others, and sharing the good news about Jesus. And so this year, we are focusing on part of our strategy of sharing the good news about Jesus. Now, thus far in this series, what we've done is we've seen 
First of all, that if we're followers of Jesus, we must go to the world around us because right now in it are people who are ready and waiting to hear the good news of Jesus, the good news that Jesus came to make real and to make available. Secondly, we've said before we go, we've got to be clear on what the gospel is, that all have sinned and all have, are separated from God, that God's Son has come to suffer death's defeat for us and to share his victory with us so that everyone who has a wholehearted faith and embraces him might come into a living relationship with his father and have their eternal destiny secured with him. This is uh, an announcement of good news of, of God's grace, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is good news that every true believer has accepted Every true believer should live, and every true believer is called to share. Thirdly, we've said together in this series that we not only need to be clear on the gospel, but we need to have a clear grasp of, on the gospel. Why? Because ironically, many who are saved by the gospel eventually lose the gospel that they've been saved by. And today I want to look again with you at uh, what this firm grip looks like and why it matters. And I want to explore a second question with you, and that second question with you is why does the gospel of grace that saves get lost. Why does it get lost? We, we looked last week at how it gets lost. Today we want to look at why the gospel of grace that saves gets lost and finally how we can recover it. I want you to take your Bibles if you would and turn with me to Galatians 1. We'll be looking at Galatians 1 and 3, and then spend some time in Galatians 3. You'll find that beginning on page 972 in the worship Bibles provided. As we begin, let's set the context for our passage one more time. The letter of Paul to the Galatians was written to churches in Galatia, which were located in the center of what is now modern-day Turkey. And uh, Paul opens, as he always opens his letters in his first five verses with words of greeting and so forth, but quickly by verse 6, he shifts gears, he changes gears, and, and he goes right to a problem. There has been a shocking spiritual development among the Galatians, one that has created an urgent spiritual crisis, and Paul is personally scandalized by it. He uses this letter as a way of getting the, the uh, Galatians to think long and hard about what's taking place and as a means of ending the crisis. Let's begin Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, and look at that passage again this morning. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be condemned to hell. Strong language, but he means it. He says it again in verse 9. He repeats it as if he is highlighting this passage. This is how serious this actually is. Now, look with me in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, one page over in the worship Bibles. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. With this challenge to the Galatians, Paul sheds light on the mystery of both how and why professing Christians lose the gospel of grace that saves them. And our passage then, as we've seen last week, yields three insights. It shows us how the gospel that saves gets lost, and then it shows us why the gospel that saves gets lost, and finally, how the gospel that saves gets found. How the gospel that saves gets lost, why the gospel that saves gets lost, and how the gospel that saves gets found. Because we've looked at the first one, we're going to look at the last two today, and that means we want to begin by looking at why the gospel that saves gets lost, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, why the gospel that saves gets lost. Oh, foolish Galatians, Paul says, what has happened to you? I don't know if you've noticed this, but in life there are times where you've just got to talk bluntly. Have you noticed that? Now, you don't want to talk bluntly all the time because if you talk bluntly all the time, you will have no friends. But there are times, even with your closest friends, you need to speak candidly. You need to speak bluntly. And that is exactly what we find the Apostle Paul doing here with the Galatians. He calls them foolish. He says that they've been bewitched, and he does so for a reason. It's very important. He's trying to help them see themselves as they really are spiritually foolish. The word foolish emphasizes the idea that uh, they have had a failure to think, a failure to think. He's saying, you're not using your heads. You're not thinking right. He is exclaiming, and he's pushing this Notion, and he's doing it bluntly because he wants to get their attention. Who's put a spell on you, he says? Who, who's confused your mind? What has caused you to miss what was so obvious to you not so awfully long ago? Who put the idea in your head that Christ wasn't enough, Christ isn't enough? He reminds them that they aren't seeing now what they once saw when they look at Christ, when they look at his cross. This, what Jesus did at the cross, they're forgetting, is the all-significant event in human history. It was the all-significant event in their own personal lives. He had before their very eyes, he says, portrayed this Christ to them and given them a glimpse of its significance. And now it seems as if they've forgotten all of it, and he cannot Believe it. Now, 
What's important is uh, this, this word portrayed is, is a word that was used for placard, to, to placard something, to post something, to put a poster up, if you will. And uh, he says, I verbally placarded this for you. I verbally portrayed, showed all of this to you, what Christ has done and why it matters. And it, it, it uh, is helpful to see exactly what he told them and, and uh, how he told it to them. We've got a couple of great examples in 2 Corinthians and also in Romans. To the Corinthians, Paul, as he was portraying Christ, he said this. He said, we plead on Christ's behalf, let God change you from his enemies into his friends. And you can just hear Paul pleading, not only with the Corinthians, but pleading with the Galatians. For Christ was without sin, but for our sake, God made him share our sin in order that in union with him, we might share the righteousness of God or Christ's right relationship with his Father. This is what is called justification. Are you all ready for some theology today? Good because you're going to get it whether you want it or not. Here it comes. If you're taking notes, this is, this is a, a display, a portrayal of what theologians call double imputation. So when you go home today and your friends ask you, well, what did he talk about? Then I want you to say double imputation, not amputation, <laughs> imputation. Imputation. What is imputation? Imputation is when a quality or a condition is credited to another. It was uh, actually a uh, business term, that's not how it's being used here, where uh, one would get credit, financial credit from another. Here, this is a condition that uh, is being credited from one to another. Now, I want you to see this, and the reason that I had this built is because I want you to be able to see what is the very heart of the gospel of grace. You will never be clear on the gospel of grace, and you will never keep a good grasp on the gospel of grace if you're not clear on, and, and quite frankly, you don't need to remember double imputation. It's very, very uh, impressive if you do. Um, write it down in your Bibles, try to memorize it. But anyway, uh, this is what I want you to see. Christ, in his death on the cross, made a way for his righteousness to be imputed or credited to us. Though we did not deserve it and we had no righteousness in ourselves, his righteousness was credited to us. At the same time, by his death on the cross, because he took our sins on him, our guilt for our sins was credited to Jesus. So in both cases, someone received what they did not deserve. We received a righteousness when we believe. We receive a righteousness we don't deserve. Christ received sin that he didn't deserve. And that is known as justification, the means by which we are made right with God. Now, I want you to notice with me, there are no, there are no good works in any of this, except for His. Christ's righteousness. Whoops. Go back. It's the wonder of technology. Christ's righteousness, His works, our guilt, our sin. 
So Paul will say to the Romans, but now God's way of putting people right, justification with himself, has been revealed. It has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do with works. It has nothing to do with what we do, even though the law of Moses and the prophets gave their witness to it. God puts people right through their faith in Jesus Christ. God does this to all who believe in Christ because there is no difference at all. Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence. But by the free gift of God's, what's the word there? What's the word there? Grace. All are put right with him through Jesus Christ who sets them free. Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence, but by this free gift of grace, all are put right with him through Jesus Christ who sets them free. God offered him. God gave Christ on the cross so that by his blood, he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. If you don't have this, you don't have the gospel of grace that saves. This is the heart of the gospel. Now, with that being said, this double imputation, this heart of the gospel, and this explanation for the Apostle Paul, we begin to understand why Paul is so astounded. He, he said, I, I just, I don't understand because he said, you, you've quickly deserted this one who did so much for you after you plainly received him. And so he's trying to wake them up. He's trying to shake them up. He's trying to shake them out of their stupor. And, and then what he does is he goes into a series of rhetorical questions where he goes, boom, 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 boom. He's just firing questions at them, firing questions at them because he wants to wake them up. He wants to wake them up. Look at the first one with me found in verse 2. He said, let me ask you only this. Well, he actually keeps asking questions, but... What he's saying is, let me ask you only this first. Let, let, me, let me ask you this first. This is the main question, actually. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Receiving the Spirit is another way of speaking about conversion. The moment that they were rescued from the old way of life and from its destiny and brought into a new life and hope in Christ. In every genuine believer's life, there is a time. Sometimes it is a moment, sometimes it is a season, but in every true believer's life, there is a time of awakening, there's a time when the eyes are opened, there's a time when the heart is opened, and there is a time where we see some things that we hadn't seen before. And what we see, first of all, is, is our own sin, the presence of our own sin, and the seriousness of our own sin. And seeing that sin, uh, coming face to face with that um, uh, reality, as painful as it is, it, that bad news, if you will, it 
creates for us, finally, the opening by which we see Christ's death on the cross as our good news. You, you will never have a, a genuine experience of Christ if you don't have, first, a genuine recognition of your sin. A genuine recognition of your sin. Now, for some people, this happens in a relatively short span of time. I remember when I came to faith in Christ, I had heard the gospel. I had heard the gospel of grace, but it was all right here. It was all right here. And, and I agreed with it, but it was all right here. But there came a moment where suddenly, and it was just like my eyes flew open, my heart flew open, and, and what I had known here became a powerful reality here. And I recognized my sin. I repented of it. That is, I said, I don't want that. I turned from it. And I found in the cross of Jesus everything I needed. Now, I didn't call it double imputation. That was something I'd, I'd say later. But I did call it love. Because I realized God had taken all that I had done, put it on his son, and taken all of Christ's purity and his righteousness and placed it on me, and I didn't deserve it. And it was that love seeing that love that absolutely captured my heart. Now, now for some of us, though, it's not in a moment. For some of us, it's, it's more like a season where uh, God, it, it's as if God works his gospel into us, the good news and the bad news, a, a little more slowly. Now, I don't know why that is. I, I'm not even going to speculate, but I know God meets people where they are. And so it may be, it could be happening even right now. Uh, I've had several people say to me, I've never heard the gospel uh, before. I thought I had, but I, I had never understood it as a gospel of grace. And, and so th there are these seasons where uh, the, the good news and the bad news, the bad news of who I really am and, and the reality of my sin becomes a growing uh, a matter of awareness for me. And at the same time, the power of the cross and of Jesus' gift for me becomes a growing awareness. And then there comes a, a, a shorter season where eyes fly open, heart opens up, and I find myself saying yes to Christ. And for many, many of us, that yes to Christ is a uh, delightful, necessary yes. Uh, I'm trying to explain it. Uh, your, your eyes fly open, your heart flies open, and, and you find yourself saying something about Jesus you had never said before, and that is, I must have him. I must have him. Life, life, life is here. I must have him. Life is here. I must have him. Now, now, I want to pause and ask you a question because we've got many, many of us here in this room who would say that uh, we have known the gospel for a long time. We would say perhaps that we were raised in church and all that kind of thing, and we're very active. And I say, that's great. I say, that's, that's terrific. 
Uh, some of us would say, you know, my grandfather was, was a pastor, my, my great-grandfather was a missionary, all these things. That's wonderful. I mean, really, and I mean that. It's wonderful that you have that kind of heritage. So I was in church all the time and uh, so on and so forth. And so I've always known the gospel. And I say that is terrific, especially if you've actually known the gospel of grace. Uh, but, 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 but. No one ever genuinely becomes a follower of Christ. No one is ever genuinely born again until they have the experience of being with God's work in your heart, broken by their sin and turning and repenting of it. Broken by their sin and turning and repenting of it. It's only when I'm broken by my sin, when I actually see my sin as sin and I see it as sorry and sad, and it is destructive, it's only then that I'm really able to see the cross as the good news that it is. If you can't see this, you're never going to recognize your need of this. Does that make sense? This is just kind of like a nice religious symbol. It's kind of a nice idea. God loves me. Well, who doesn't want God to love me? I mean, of course. But it doesn't have power until you see this. Sometimes, perhaps the best prayer we can pray is not God save me, but God lose me. Help me see how lost I really am so that I can see how great your son really is. And the reason I'm stressing this and the reason I've paused here to talk to you about this is because there are so many of us who have had a connection with the gospel and have had a connection with, with a church for so long in our lives that we can't tell the difference between knowledge, head knowledge, and a wholehearted faith embrace of Jesus. Nobody's ever questioned us on it, so I'm questioning you on it. You say, well, you're, gonna, you're causing people to question their salvation? I say, yeah. The apostle Paul did. He said, you better examine yourself to know whether you're in the faith or not. So I'm just following his example. I'm just following his example, but I don't mean that uh, to harangue you in any way, but I do have a sense as, as a pastor and as a minister of the gospel that, that I've got to be clear on the gospel. I want to be sure you have a grasp on the gospel, and I don't want you to step into eternity not knowing, genuinely knowing whose you are. I don't want to see you step into eternity assuming you're one thing when you're not. Going to church all of your life doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Some of you think about that. It'll come. It'll come. So, so Paul asks here, what did you do to experience this conversion? What did you do to experience this new life, this empowering presence of the, of the Holy Spirit? And these are all rhetorical questions. He already knows they know the answer. He's trying to get them to actually say the answer. They know. They they did nothing, nothing. The gospel of grace that Paul preached to them and that they accepted was not an invitation. 
to do the works of the law, to check boxes on a list. That was not his invitation. It was a declaration of what God had done, and, and it was an offer to receive what God had done on the cross with a hearing of faith. They heard the good news with a trust in Jesus. They did embrace Christ. They gave all of themselves to him, and they did this because of what Christ did. They did nothing to receive it themselves, which leads to Paul's next question. And I hate this because I'm having to pause and explain these. And if you really want to hear it, you just got to read the passage all the way through because he's going, how did you, how did you, how did you, how did you, how did you? It's like boom, 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 because he's trying to wake them up. So verse three, are you so foolish? He says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, Translated, this means, have you really lost your mind to this extent? You began this new life, made new by God's own spirit, and now you're going to perfect what God started in your own flesh, in your own strength? Paul probably wanted to ask them, how weak do you think Christ is and how strong do you think you are? Having begun this new life in Christ with the power of his spirit, what makes you think you can finish it out in your own power? What makes you think you can improve on what God has done? What makes you think you can improve on the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you so foolish? And by the way, foolish here means idiotic. I mean, being as blunt as he can be. Now, this is not an uncommon problem in church history. Many have, have believed uh, and taken a similar position. They believe that justification, what I showed you here, that being made right with God begins with faith in Christ. They would agree with that and they would be right. But they believe that sanctification, being made like Christ after you've come to faith in Christ, is made real only by their own effort. The truth is that both justification and sanctification come in the same way, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, and by the work of the Holy Spirit in a life. We are saved by grace through faith in the power of God. We also live by grace through faith in the power of God. We live our lives as believers saying, I can't, but you can. I can't, but you can. I can't, but you can. We live our lives saying, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, that is in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, there's the gospel, and gave himself for me. I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and I live by grace, through faith in Jesus. My salvation and my living all come from the same source. So I live saying I can't, but he can. Listen, you married people, you can't have a good marriage. You can't have a healthy marriage. You can't do it. And your spouse certainly can't do it. You figure that out now. You can, but by God's grace, you can be the husband, you can be the wife God intended for you to be. By his grace, 
through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. Everything God asks us to do and everything God asks us to be, He stands ready to do and He stands ready to make us by His power. He does not ask us to do it in our own. Notice the next question. He said, verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He asked this because after the Galatians had put their faith in Christ, they did suffer. They, they uh, suffered discrimination. They suffered abuse at the hands of the people around them. They suffered discrimination and abuse for their faith in Christ. Now, you would agree with me, I'm, I'm sure, that no one typically uh, is abused when they do and believe what everyone around them does and believes. And uh, so that's pretty standard. I mean, in our own culture, if you don't accept what the culture now says is right and true, you, you get abused, you get attacked. And, and so the, the easy way is always to agree with what the culture says is true and right and good and to do what the culture is doing. Uh, when when uh, uh, you go cross-grain, when you start to, to uh, make uh, uh, a different declaration than this one. I, I decide who I am. I decide what I do. Uh, and no one can decide for me who I am. And no one can decide for me what I do. I can make myself better. I can make myself acceptable. Uh, I believe that if it's to be, it's up to me. If you go across counter to that philosophy so prevalent in our culture, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get pushback. Whenever a person lives with a gospel-centered life and they say essentially with their lives, I can't, but God can. I can't, but God can. I need you, Lord. Apart from you, I can do nothing. When you start living that way, the world always reacts with mockery and scorn. Why? Because that kind of life actually exposes our true condition as human beings. No matter how hard we try, we cannot save ourselves from ourselves. No matter how hard we try to be God, as much as we try to be God, we discover we're not God. And so Paul wants to know, have you suffered all of this for nothing? If this new gospel you're turning to is right, and you've got to add to Christ's work on the cross with your own good deeds, your own effort, then you did suffer for nothing. But you know, you know that's not true. Think, Paul says, think. And then another question comes. Look at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's final question goes something like this. What kind of God do you think the great God of heaven really is? Who gives his Holy Spirit and works miracles in lives in you and around you. God has given his spirit to you at conversion. Your life has changed. 
Galatians, you've seen change in your own life. Galatians, you've seen God work around you. Do you think God did all of these things? Do you think God worked through you? Do you think God worked in you? Do you think God did what only God could do with your, right before your very eyes because of the good works you did? Because you had right deeds? Do you think that somehow he was rewarding you? What kind of God do you think he is? Do you think he did these things because you deserve them or somehow because he owed them to you? Do you think he's a God who works by contract? Is he like a divine vendor dispensing nice things to those who pay him with the right deeds according to some prior arrangement? I want to remind you, God is no one's ATM machine. You cannot punch in a certain number of buttons and get blessings out. That is not the way he works. He is not a contract-making God. He is a covenant-making God, which means that he is willing to graciously commit all of himself to us when we have absolutely nothing to give to him. And that is the great joy of the gospel. Do you know how good it feels not to be God anymore? Not to be emperor or empress of the world, the one who's responsible for making everybody else do what you think they should do. Do you know how freeing it is to get rid of your own divinity? Where you don't have to be the center of the universe anymore? That's a lot of joy. It's a lot of joy in discovering that the one who is at the center of the universe, whose place we have tried to take over and over again, welcomes us and accepts us into himself. That's where the joy comes from. That's where the delight comes from. That's what makes the gospel so very good. It's what makes good news. So what does all this mean? The reason that the gospel of grace with the power of God to save is lost is is for the same reason that we needed the gospel of grace in the first place. True believers lose the gospel of grace when their minds become muddled and they begin, watch now, to think too much of themselves and too little of God. Too much of themselves and too little of God. In other words, when we start thinking the way we used to think. Why does the gospel of grace that saves get lost in the life of a believer who's accepted it? The answer is the gospel gets lost after it's accepted because pride is found again after it was once rejected. When you were genuinely saved, you said, I can't do this myself. I I can't overcome my sin. 
I, I can't overcome my bad habits, my tendencies. Oh, I can make some corrections to be sure, and I can discipline myself more. I, I can do that. I can do that, but I can't overcome this natural selfishness and self-centeredness that keeps wreaking such havoc in my life and my relationships. I can't stop this pattern of self-destruction. I cannot do it, which is very humbling, but it is in that humbling experience that we find the grace of God. The gospel gets lost after it's accepted because pride is found again where it was once rejected as a dead end and a very poor way to live. Pride makes fools of us all. It always has. It always will. Think about it. Some of the dumbest things you've ever done in your life, you did because you were proud and full of yourself. You say, how do you know that? Because I've done this very same thing. When we're full of pride, we don't see ourselves correctly. We don't see others correctly. We don't see situations correctly, and we make really crazy decisions. Has anybody else experienced that, or is it just me? Believers begin to lose the gospel of grace when they begin to think of themselves as beyond needing grace when they begin to think of themselves as being worthy of it somehow. They forget who they are. They forget what they can do. They forget what they can't do. And they neglect the fact that God, the God who made them uh, his own, who supplied the Spirit to them, who worked miracles for them, in them, around them, didn't do so because of their good works. He did these things freely by his own choice for those who simply hear the gospel and place their faith in Christ. And this has been true, Paul says, since Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what does all this mean for you personally? What Paul asked the Galatians, he also asked you and he asked me, who do you think you are and who do you think God is? We answer that question every single day of our lives. We answer it either with the gospel of grace or we answer that question with a gospel of works. That is no gospel at all. And the only way you can answer those questions rightly is for you to do two things. First of all, you've got, and you must, and I must, keep a close check on our lives for the presence of pride. One of the best ways I know for, for a believer to keep close check on the, on the presence of pride is how they relate to people who are living broken lives. If you find someone who is trapped in a sin and you look down on them, you know you have lost your grip on the gospel of grace. When you look at another person whose life is falling apart, whose life has gone off the rails, who you're just watching and it's like they've, they're, they're, uh, you're watching a, a train wreck 
You ever been in that position where you watch and you say, you know, there's a cliff, there's a cliff, there's a cliff, there's a cliff, there's a cliff. You've tried to tell them there's a cliff, there's a cliff, there's a cliff. Finally, over they go, and sure enough, there's a cliff. You know you're losing your grip on the gospel of grace when you see yourself as somehow better, wiser, smarter than they are. When you start to do that, you have reverted from living according to the gospel of grace to a gospel of works, and you said, I'm better. You're like the Pharisee who in the temple, when he was praying, saw the publican beating his chest saying, forgive me, God, for I'm a sinner. And he says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that man. When you start doing that, when you see that poor person with a sign out there uh, at Haynes Mall standing on the corner, and you think, what a waste of a life. I would never get to that point. You have lost your grip on the gospel. When you hear one of your friends has committed adultery and you say, I would never do that. I always knew something was wrong with them. Yes, of course you did. There is something wrong with them and the same thing is wrong with you. Don't ever say, I could never commit adultery because you can. Apart from the grace of God at work in your heart and in your life, you can and you may very well commit adultery. To be a follower of Jesus is not to look down on other people. It is to come alongside other people with the gospel of his grace. It does include bad news. But it also includes the greatest news human ears will ever hear. So if you start getting uppity, looking down at other people, being critical of people who are trapped in their sin, being critical of people who are uh, flamboyant in their sin and in your face with their sin, you've lost your grip on the gospel. Because someone who's been, someone who's been captured by the gospel will live their lives saying with everyone they see, I'm a sinner capable of the very same thing except for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God. Watch closely for the presence of pride. Secondly, understand that the only way to find the, the lost gospel of grace when you've begun to lose it is to go back to the place where you first found it. Indeed, notice with me quickly how the gospel that saves gets found in verses 7 to 9. Paul says to them, know then, seeing all this, what you had seen before but had begun to lose. Remember that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham who are the children of God. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify, make right the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to pagan Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul closes his appeal to the Galatians by pointing them again to know or realize what they knew and what they realized when they were first saved. 
What is required to be part of God's family, to be counted as his sons and daughters, is faith in his gospel of grace, not works. And this is what the life of Abraham, the great man of faith, finally teaches. God came to this pagan Abraham, preached the gospel to him, Paul says. He didn't ask Abraham to do anything. He simply said, here's what I'm going to do for you. And Abraham believed. So I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And from the line of Abraham came one named Jesus Christ, who is, his, who is himself the greatest blessing this world can ever know. So in the same way that the gospel that saves gets lost when faith alone and Christ alone is abandoned, the gospel is restored. When we know again that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have our only cure for our sin and the means by which we're restored. We know again that our human works and our goodness are never ways to please Him, never ways to offset sin. The gospel of grace is restored when we live again saying what Paul said to Titus, he saved me, not because of works done by me in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of his Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, he has poured him out on me richly so that being justified by grace, I might become an heir according to the hope of eternal life. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you, do you have a firm grip on the gospel? Only those with a firm grip on it are going to live by it, and only those with a firm grip on it are going to be able to share it, can give it away. Do the people around you in the world you live in, do they see the grip you've got on the gospel? Or even better, I just thought of this, do they see that the gospel has its grip on you? Get clear, get a grip, go. Your world is waiting. Do you know it? Have you received it? I thought about ways that I might be able to help you because I've raised uh, a lot of challenges. I want to share some books with you. When you go out, you're going to get a card with these books. You're also going to get a uh, summary of the gospel that we use with, uh, with kids, but it's a great summary also give you a card with uh, these book recommendations. This is the gospel. I think this fits kids about five to nine. Very clear explanation of what the gospel is. If we're going to help our kids, we need to help them. The greatest thing you can do for them is help them get clear on what the gospel is. Start young, start early, start often with as many kids as you have. You missed it, but that's all right. A second book that I would highly recommend is God Made Me and You, Celebrating God's Design for Ethnic Diversity. God is the author of Ethnic Diversity, and uh, Shay Lynn does a phenomenal job of discussing God's design and then God's plan of salvation. It is absolutely phenomenal. My favorite for kids is God's Very Good Idea. Guess what God's Very Good Idea is? Jesus, that is his very good idea. 
great explanation of the gospel for kids. Uh, Any kids up, say, till probably fifth grade or or even sixth. Now, uh, finally, the the beginner's gospel uh, story Bible. It walks kids all the way through the Bible and keeps pointing them to the gospel. I wish I had this book when, when my kids were young, but I have grandkids, so I've got a copy to read with them. Uh, For teenagers, this changes everything, how the gospel transforms the teen years. Now, this is a great book for parents of teens to read as well as for teens to read. So if you're a parent of a teenager, I'd encourage you to get two copies, give one to your teen, and keep one for yourself and read it. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Then for uh, adults, high schoolers as well, but particularly for adults, Counterfeit Gospels by Trevin Wax is a phenomenal book for the way in which it explains what the gospel is, how the gospel works, and what the false gospels are that are present in in our world today. You know the kind of gospels that say, God loves you, you've got to receive Jesus, now send me 10 bucks and God will send you 10,000. Those same guys that you want to say to them, you want to call them on the 1-800 number and say, hey, listen, why don't I save you some trouble and me some trouble? Why don't you give God $10,000 and let him send you? No, yeah, let him send you 100000 since you need money so much. Hey, if it's going to work for me, why doesn't it work for you? Because it's not a gospel. It's a scam. And it's a shame because they use Jesus to to do that. So Counterfeit Gospels, I would encourage every adult to read that book. Finally, there's a new documentary out entitled American Gospel, uh, Brandon Kimber. Um, It's a little less than two hours long. You can get it on Amazon Prime. You can watch it there. It's relatively inexpensive. Uh, You can order the DVD, but it is a powerful expose of what is happening in so many churches in America who are abandoning the gospel. Not from the left. The left has abandoned the gospel by simply changing it into social justice. That's not the gospel. Uh, And it's not from the right where they turn the gospel into rules keeping and rules following. It's from the send me 10 bucks and God will send you 10,000 group. It's It's a very very sobering, and I found it incredibly helpful. And I hope these things will help you because my heart for you and my heart for every person in your world is that you will live clear on the gospel, gripped by the gospel, with the gospel's grip on you. Go. We got to go. Our world is waiting. There are people who are thirsty right here, right now, for what only Jesus can give. They're your friends. They're your family. They're your coworkers. They're your neighbors. They're all around you. And God says, go. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that uh, by your grace and by your great mercy, you have given us this gift called double imputation, called justification by faith in Christ. I thank you, Father God, that by your great 
grace, you have taken us as sinners and made us your sons and daughters by adoption, by the transfer of our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. The debt of love that we owe you is beyond our capacity to repay. And yet, our hearts, when they've been transformed by Christ, yearn to do something, yearn to do everything to show you how great our love is for your infinite love for us. Compel us, Father, is my prayer, to go. Keep the gospel clear. Keep our grip on it strong so that others might see and know there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. In His name we ask it. Amen. Would you stand all across the room? We're going to uh, share together in a closing song. This is one of the most powerful songs that I've heard in a long, long time. If you're not careful, this song will make a liar out of you. But if you mean it, this song will absolutely transform. This is the song that every person sings who first comes to Christ. This is the song that every person sings who gets up in the morning and walks with Jesus. I've been telling you to put things on your ceiling. Put all the lyrics to this song on your ceiling. We're going to have it filled up. Your interior decorator isn't going to like it, but she needs to see it and know it. So go ahead and do it. But a powerful song. If today you realize that you've had head knowledge about Jesus, but you've never had a personal relationship with Him, you've never really engaged Him, oh, you've prayed to Him, but there's never been for you a, a direct encounter with your sin that broke you and caused you to see the cross as beautiful in all of its savagery. And God today is calling you, showing you what he's done in Jesus. I'll be right here. I'll invite our prayer partners to come and join me right here. And together, together, we'll point you to Christ. We'll point you to Christ. I want your help. Will you help me? John, will you help me? Okay. You come. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.